Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogix for balancing hormone levels. Theralogix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogix, supplements from science. For this episode, we partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during, and after pregnancy. Support your body with radically better nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center, and I'm joined by my daring and delightful co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas, who sounds a little gravelly today, right, Carrie? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> like, I kind of sound like a boy going through puberty. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, my family has been laughing at me all weekend because I sound so sexy. Yeah, you got that gravelly voice going on. Yeah. Well, I, I, was, I was telling Susan and Carrie, I woke up this morning, like, feeling stress and it's kind of one of those things you can't you can't think about it too much or it'll it'll drive you crazy but in about another week or two we're gonna do a lot of renovations in our house we're gonna redo all of our floors and redo our entire kitchen so i think That's my husband will probably job. be li- how long are you our- take to do that well the the contractor that we have actually we ordered everything literally about almost 10 12 months ago Whoa. so he waits till everything comes in and he also builds the cabinets so he lines up the job and boom, 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 he gets it done within a few weeks once because he has everything there and the cabinets are okay. ready to go. So um he's he's kind of like the suit Nazi on Seinfeld, if you ever saw that episode. <laughs> no <suit> for you. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you need if you don't order the knobs today, we are changing your time for implosion of your kitchen. So I'm like, okay, okay. So my husband and I are a little intimidated by him, but he's 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 really a great guy. And I've I've heard from people that have worked with him, he's does an excellent job, but he's a little a little intimidating. You don't want to, it's like being at the principal's office. You don't want to make him mad or upset him. <laughs> so are you completely changing the look of your kitchen? We are completely changing the look. We have a 1990s kitchen and it's a nice kitchen with nice cabinets, but it's a 1990s kitchen and it's kind of dark brown, brown granite countertops and and our floors are kind of dark brown too. And so it's like really brown. So we're going, you know, mostly white with a little bit of color pop here and there. So also, it's kind of fun picking all those things out. It so. is. I, I have to say that that picking out stage is probably what makes me the most anxious because whenever I have to go pick out things, I'm like essentially like stunned into like inaction because I'm so scared. I'm going to make the wrong decision. Usually I like to do stuff like that. That to me, that's fun to kind of see how it all fits together. But I will say with the countertops, that was a little, that was a big decision because, you know, 
kind of expensive and you're like, okay, am I going to really be happy with this or not? So yeah. but it's kind of fun. I'm excited. And I just keep thinking, wait till about March and it'll, it'll be great then. <laughs> Have yeah. We're going to redo a couple of like storage area places. So like my, my closet that sits right next to me at my desk, I'm going to redo. So it's kind of an expansion of my desk here. And yeah. So That'll, be nice. That'll be nice to have that extra space for sure. Yeah. It's always great when it's done, but yeah, like I could put my microphone and my, all of my podcasting stuff there and oh, oh, cool. my husband's crap won't be on my desk anymore. Oh, oh there you go. Well, so today we're going to do a little episode on, and we kind of looked at the questions that we get the most of, and the most questions that we have really right now are what to do if you have a failed IVF cycle. So that's going to be our topic today. So Susan's got some questions for us. What you got, Susan? I do. Okay. Our first one is, hi there. I just love you guys. Thank you so much. Um, I've had three unsuccessful transfers with grade A embryos due to lack of implantation. I am a 28-year-old female, husband is 32, and our reason for IVF is sperm blockage. I have slight hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's that is controlled and possible endo. I had a hysteroscopy done to remove a uterine septum. My first cycle, I created two grade A embryos. In the second cycle, we did another hysteroscopy, and my RA said my septum had grown back a bit. We made four grade A embryos the second round. The most eggs we've been able to retrieve is 10. What do you re recommend? I take all the supplements. What could be causing recurrent implantation failure? My RA does not re recommend PGTA testing due to our age. He said that my lining is great as well. Oh, there's a lot of things we could do. There are oh, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of things to touch base on. I think the big thing that jumped out when you kept saying grade A embryos, grade A embryos, grade A embryos you know, we know now that we do a lot of genetic testing that grade A embryos don't mean genetically normal embryos. And we know if you have a genetically abnormal embryo, you're either not going to get pregnant, you're going to have early loss or possibly a baby with an ab abnormality. But most of the time, if we transfer embryos that are genetically abnormal, you don't even get pregnant at all. And so, you know, even young women, we know it's like flipping a coin, 50-50 chance that you'll have a genetically abnormal embryo. And it really, I think when we started doing genetics, I think we as fertility doctors, we kind of knew that. But when you see it on paper and we see it all the time, it really happens. It's 50-50. And so, you know, it may be possibly just bad luck that you've had three transfers of three genetically abnormal embryos. And so, 50-50 chance with each one of them. So I think definitely that would be somewhere I would potentially start. However, now there's data to suggest it's not great to thaw embryos out because in order to be able to test them, you have to thaw them out, genetically test them, and then refreeze them again. And so, you know, that's kind of a toss-up. But um, certainly, you know, if you have more embryos left, uh, you know, hopefully if you keep transferring one, you're going to find a normal one. I think there's some other things that you might want to look at. And I know you mentioned the septum and I'll, I, there's lots of things to unpack here. So I'll let Carrie and Susan talk too, but the septum, probably a good idea to look um, hysteroscopically again at that. I mean, the septum doesn't necessarily grow back. It's just, it can scar back together again. And so maybe tweaking that may help a little bit. Um, there's data that really show it probably septum doesn't make a huge difference, but it's just a good opportunity for your doctor to look in your cavity, see if there's anything else going on, take some biopsies, see if there's polyps, endometritis, et cetera. Mm -hmm. With respect to septums growing back, the other thing that I have seen is that sometimes in order to get the septum without bleeding, when you're doing the original hysteroscopy, you've got pretty high pressure in there. And so it's expanding the uterus. And so when you're cutting, it makes the septum appear smaller, like you've gotten more of it than you really have. And then you take the pressure down 
let it heal for however long and then go back in and you're like, oh, damn, there's still some there. And so you you want to take it out. You know, I would agree that most of the time that's not super problematic in terms of getting pregnant unless it's a complete septum where it really, truly divides the cavity in two. If it's a really mild heart shape, that's less interesting in terms of blocking pregnancies. But um, but that's kind of what I thought of with the septum. The other thing with grade A embryos is that grading is very subjective in the same way that when you write an essay, one teacher will love it and the next teacher will hate it. Grading is on paper, totally objective. Like there are standards. This is what the one, two, three number means. This is what the first ABC number and this is what the second ABC letter means. Um, but the actual eyes of the embryologist really make a difference and the culture of the lab because some are really strict and some are really relaxed. And I just wrote this chapter of our book, so I'm actively thinking about all of it. But even though the criteria is laid out, how much you zoom in really makes a difference. And we've had embryologists come to us from other centers where they had a more relaxed approach. And we were like, no, you have to zoom in. You have to take it up to 100x power and really look at it. And he's like, I wonder how many I was missing because they look fine from the lower magnification. And when you really look at it, it's like, there's not actually a good inner cell mass there. There's really not very many trophectoderm cells. And so we see that a lot with embryos that we're getting from other places where the grading that they were given is not necessarily representative of what we're seeing. So another thing that you mentioned was that you possibly have endometriosis. So I'm assuming on an ultrasound that you've had a potential endometrioma noted or something like that. So um, as we've mentioned before in some of our episodes, we've talked a lot about a chemical called BCL-6. Um, BCL-6 is related to the presence of endometriosis. And we know that um, it itself can be an independent factor for recurrent implantation failure. And so, you know, in your situation, I think there's a couple of options. Um, there's a test called Receptiva, which um, is good at um, determining if you have BCL-6 as present, if it's present. Um, and if it is present, then potentially a couple of months of suppression with either um, Depolupron or um, an oral medicine called Orlissa can actually improve your outcomes. Sometimes people opt to just um, take the suppressive medicine um, instead of doing the testing, especially if there's any evidence that you actually may have endometriosis. Um, so that's another thing that that could be added to your armamentarium to potentially make another uh, embryo transfer a little more successful. And FYI, that's episode number 171, 171, because I think I asked Carrie last week. <laughs> you are absolutely right. All right. You're ready for another one? Let's yeah. do it. Okay. Your podcast is great and I look forward to it weekly. Again, thank you so much. Thank I'm a you. healthy 34-year-old with irregular periods after stopping OCPs. Saw an REI, had three failed femora IUIs, moved on to IVF, retrieved four eggs, but got two normal PGT embryos. AMH 1.42, saline and HSG normal. First FET failed, endometrial biopsy was positive for BCL-6, which we just talked about. Took Depolupron for two months um, for the new endometriosis diagnosis. Second FET was a success, but HCG-13 then 6 was told it was a biochemical pregnancy. Heartbreaking. Thyroid and clotting workup normal. Got second opinion. REI checked prolactin, which had never been tested. High at 45, which was two times normal. MRI normal started coverglane and levels now low. 
Husband is 38 with sperm samples normal. Do you think chronic hyperlactin led to ovulatory issues in miscarriage? Thoughts on next steps. Thank you. I don't know what it does, but I've definitely seen people over the years that show up to the office and you ask that one little question like, oh, do you have to have breast discharge? Oh, yeah, I do. My OB said it was fine or whoever said it was fine. And if you're not trying to get pregnant and they've checked it out and it's not that high and they've done a thorough workup, it's probably not that big of a deal. But if you're trying to get pregnant, it can be a big deal. It can affect your cycles. It can make them irregular. And sometimes I'll even just treat patients, even if they have a normal prolactin level, but if, they, if they're if they having galactorrhea, which galactorrhea, I'm sorry, is breast discharge. So if they're having breast discharge, kind of like breast milk that you would have if you had a baby, I'll treat them with carbogaline, Dostinex, and dry that up. And I've just anecdotally, I've had pretty darn good success. When you find somebody like that, it's kind of, kind of exciting because you're like, this may be it. So I do think it may have had some bearing on your implantation. And, you know, if everything goes perfectly, however, only roughly, you know, 30, 40% chance of, I mean, I'm at 30% chance of not getting pregnant. And so even if everything goes perfectly, sometimes it doesn't work out. But definitely, I think that that's something that really could make a difference for you as far as your next transfer. The other thing that popped out at me is that you are, you only got four eggs, which I was originally thinking when you said irregular cycles, oh, this is a PCOS kind of situation. Mm -hmm. and this is probably a decreased ovarian reserve on the exact opposite end. And so that that always makes me wonder, like, okay, what is the underlying quality of those embryos? Now, just because you're only getting four eggs, that doesn't mean that you have terrible embryos. It's just it kind of introduces one additional factor of like, I wonder what else is going on with the structural components of it. You know, I think it's good that you did the the depolupron. I would agree with treating the the prolactin just to see if you can get a little bit of an edge up there. I would make sure that your thyroid is currently well behaved. Um, all of those types of things, diabetes, and you mentioned blood clotting factors. There's, uh, I don't know if that includes just the thrombophilia workup or if it also includes some of the antiphospholipid antibodies um, and karyotypes. I have seen people, even with PGT normal embryos, have abnormal karyotypes that that change how we approach things. So, you know, I would make sure that all of those have been done. But I think I think dealing with the prolactin will be helpful. I would say that I was surprised by her low number considering her AMH. Her AMH is not excessively high, but I would have expected more than four eggs. And if you end up having to do another stimulation, it'd be interesting to see now that the prolactin is under better control, whether that maybe has some impact on that as well, just because that that wasn't quite what I think we would have expected. All right. Our next one. Hello. I'm... 34 years old, uh, past medical history is uh, uterine didelphus, BMI 22, just finished second round of IVF, which resulted in zero fertilized embryos. No. One day six embryo from round one, baseline cycle day three labs, AMH 0.79, FSH 8.6, LH 6.2, estradiol 47, AFC 6, normal genetic screen for patient and spouse, um, husband's 34, negative medical or surgical history, um, semen analysis normal, round one consisted of estrace 2 milligrams BID, Minipure 225, Clomid 10 milligrams, Decadron 0.5, Cetratide times 2 prior to Pregnil. Round two, Minipure was 300, um, cycle was three days longer, cycles were two months apart. Round two resulted in significantly fewer and smaller follicles, no embryos. What are the odds of another round being more successful? Any medication recommendations? Very worried, worried about miscarriage with didelphus and only one embryo. Thank you so much. 
that was a long question with a lot of information. I got about a third of that, I think. But to sum it up, it sounds like she had a low AMH, correct? Yes, 0.79. Okay, so that was sort of the reason why she didn't get a lot of eggs. Did she tell us how many eggs she got each time or not? So, let's see. She just said AFC of six. Yeah, yeah. So we don't know how many eggs that she got, but she had no fertilization. Yeah. Uh, So the one thing I would comment is, you know, you're only taking 225 or 300 units of your gonadotropin. There's a lot of room to push your ovaries harder, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there is a school of thought that less is more. I think less is more in some circumstances. I'm trying to get every single little follicle you can get. Um, I think there's good evidence to say that up to 225, 225 is a very reasonable dose going beyond that. I mean, I can say I even go beyond that sometimes, but I know that the data doesn't necessarily support that. Um, And and so I think pushing your ovaries harder um, would make a lot more sense to me. Um, I would say make sure you're taking CoQ10, potentially consider um, DHEA and uh, might want to think about, you know, is there additional sperm things going on? Um, I know not everybody believes in DNA fragmentation, but um, I think it would be a wor- worthwhile check on his sperm um, just to leave no stone unturned. Yeah, and I would add in microdose Lupron Flare with that because microdose Lupron, what it will do over the first week or so will make you produce your own FSH. And you know, FSH is the hormone that we give you when you do IVF to really try to override your system, really push your ovaries. So it kind of, I always tell patients, it kind of gives you a one-two punch or gives your ovaries a one-two punch. We give you microdose Lupron Flare at the beginning of your cycle and kind of overlap it with the FSH. It makes you squirt out a whole bunch of FSH or release a whole bunch of FSH that hopefully will start to really push your ovaries to get the eggs to grow. And then like Susan said, we usually hit you with twice a day FSH, 150, 225, twice a day to see if we can kind of really push your ovaries to make eggs. Um, and, you know, more eggs don't necessarily mean better fertilization, but it just gives us more to work with. And I suspect that probably with an AMH of 0.79, you probably didn't make very many eggs. So the more eggs that you can make, the better the chances. I would be curious about some of the numbers that you hit mid-stim. So, for example, when you baselined, how how did your follicles look? Were they nice and small? Sometimes you need more than just estrogen as pretreatment. You need a GnRH antagonist like Cetrotitoganorelix, sometimes Orlissa leading into the cycle, something to really suppress it. Um, so that's one thought. The next thought is what were your FSH levels about day four or so? And how did that correspond with your estrogen? Because if your FSH levels were sky high, then you don't need more meds and don't spend that money. Um, I would agree. I think these doses are are a little on the lower side than what what I would normally give. It's interesting to me that it's just men up here. Most of us use a combination of Boston, Gonolef, you know, whatever form of FSH with the men up here. Um, well, it sounds but- like they just used FSH the first time and then they went to men up here the second time instead of... I thought that they used combined in both. 225 for the first one too. Like I thought it was, I thought it was the same. And then they bumped to menotropins 300 for the second cycle. I didn't hear any FSH in there. I heard Clomid the first cycle. Oh, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. So, uh, so yeah, just menopure. But I, I mean, there's, there's a handful of people who use pure menopure. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think it's just an interesting choice, especially because menopure, like if if I see anybody react to the gonadotropins, the menopure, the menopure can burn. And so I've I've had a couple patients who they hate it, but it works well. It just they hate it. Yeah, it's it's more expensive. It's more difficult to mix. Um, it's harder to get sometimes. So yeah, uh, I I think we would all probably all three use a combination of both, wouldn't we? Yeah, I, yeah. I usually I I use yeah. pretty much dual in everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think knowing the number of eggs would be interesting because if. If you have an FSH level on day four that is plenty high, meaning like well clear of 20, then giving additional medications is not necessarily going to help. And those are the cases where you start to think about, okay, is it really worthwhile for me to back down and just do a Clomid cycle or do Clomid with very minimal gonadotropins? Um, but you need that data to really feel comfortable doing that because I don't, I don't know that any of us would feel comfortable right at this point saying, oh yeah, back off and do just a clomid cycle. I like well, the idea of a flare too. And here, the reason you're saying that I think is because what you're saying is normally an FSH level should be under 10. If it's over 20, that tells us that your brain is screaming at your ovaries to wake up and make eggs. And it's really overloading your system with a lot more FSH than a normal reproductive age woman would be making. And so you know, giving you more of what you're already making high volumes of, it's just, it's not going to change anything with your ovaries. It's not going to really help your ovaries. You're not going to necessarily make any more eggs. Your brain is already yelling at your ovary to do that. And it's not, you know, stepping up to the challenge, basically. Yeah. Would also be interested in knowing some of the maturity data too. Like, are all the eggs that you're getting mature or there are a bunch of immature ones in there? You know, just some of, some of that information, like looking at you know, what's your karyotype? Why are you so low? Do you have, do you carry fragile X? Some of, some of those types of questions that you may have already had checked, but, um, you know, we're thinking about. Absolutely. You're 34 though. Karyotype is negative, so probably negative for fragile X. Okay. That's fair. I mean, you're young, keep going. You know, you, you are the ones that we live for of like, yes, we will get there. Um, AMH is 0.79 though. So that's challenging, but yeah, keep going. Yeah, I I would take that in a 39-year-old over, or excuse me, a 34-year-old 34-year-old. Absolutely stellar levels in a 44-year-old any day of the week and twice. Yeah, amen to that one. <laughs> Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, Ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. All right, our next one. Hi, docs. Grateful for your informative podcast. Again, thank you. My husband and I are both 36 and unexplained infertility. AMH 3.8, EFC 15, FSH 6.7. Husband's sperm tests are normal. We've been trying for four years. We've gone through four unsuccessful IUIs and two rounds of IVF. Both times we retrieved 18 eggs, 15 mature, 10 to 11 fertilized, but our embryos only reached the morula early blast stage and were poor quality with significant fragmentation. We are unsure whether to try another round of IVF or move on to egg donation. I would greatly appreciate any insights or advice you have for patients in my situation. That's tough because it's really hard to know when an egg doesn't continue to grow and develop in somebody that's 36, what the, the why. And, you know, certainly there's things that we talk about in terms of supplements like CoQ10 and antioxidants and things like that that may help the egg continue to grow. One of the platforms out there, which not all labs have the capability of doing that, but something called LifeView, they have the ability to do PGTA 
plus. And the plus part essentially looks at your embryos and gives you a sense for is it an egg issue or is it a sperm issue? Because even if you She's guys not decided class, she isn't even getting to biopsyable stage. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So it's hard to really know in terms I, of which it is. If I were gonna do another, this is one of those quintessential, but it always gets blamed on the egg. And you know, right. it may not always be sport. I if you were gonna do another round, I would try biopsied sperm. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's not fun, but what you're going through isn't fun either. And you've been through it twice. Tell me what um, you mean by biopsied sperm. Like tetsy sperm. Sometimes oh, you're okay. getting better quality. Well, actually, what I thought you were going to say is use donor sperm, depending on how many eggs she get, because she's got a big number of eggs. Use donor sperm for half and see what happens with those. See if we get better development. Be cheaper to do it that way. If you, you know, it'd be one of those things, you know, do you want the female component of the couple or the male component of the couple, you know, but you could, it'd be cheaper to use donor sperm and you could do half donor sperm and half husband sperm and see what happens. I would do a sperm QT first. Mm-hmm. And see, see what the sperm looks like functionality, because even though IVF is the treatment for a poor sperm QT result, mm-hmm. I, it still kind of gives you a hint. Like, uh, and the other thing was depending on what the sperm parameters are and presumably they're good. Cause I think these guys have unexplained infertility. I had a patient yesterday. So this couple has gone through now a total of three IVF cycles. They His sperm is absolutely awful. And we did on this most recent one, I just saw a paper that came out like end of 2023 that said, we're doing sperm collection all wrong. We really should be doing instead of a two to five day abstinence time period, how the guy ejaculate some stupid number of, of times, like seven times before we do <laughs> the... um before we get the actual sample that we use for sperm. And so when I call these patients who are on their- So you're cleaning out the pipes then is what you're saying? You're cleaning out the pipes with all the bad sperm? (laughs) They said all the oxidative damage happens while they're in the epididymis. And so if you minimize the transport time, you are improving the sample. So what we ended up doing is we did the day before an early morning sample, an evening sample, both of which sucked. They were awful. And then we did two morning samples at like 5 and 6 a.m. before we did the retrieval, and they were awesome. Really? And, and I how did you, how, how the fertilization, how the fertilization go? Do you know yet? So I just got that. It's 18 out of 18. Wow. wow. And they had, they had fertilization issues? Their fertilization issues were, they, they weren't terrible, but they weren't great either. Like I wasn't ever hitting 100% before. And so... I'm super curious to see because they have they have made embryos before. It's just everything has ended in miscarriage and pretty much all the rest of her testing is stone cold normal. And I have done everything in the free world. Wow. So you do have times pretty good sperm numbers to be able to ejaculate that frequently and maintain pretty decent numbers, though. On his prior IVF cycles, we got uh, about a million sperm. Really? That's yeah, it. So he, he has low numbers. Weren't you afraid that he wouldn't be able to ejaculate on the day of retrieval? Or did you have frozen sperm back up for him? I got the sperm from the day before. Like my lab got every single one of those samples and they prepped every one. So they were ready. No oh, matter what. okay. We and had then he ejaculated. So he did it twice the day before. And then on the day of, he did it. Yeah. Ah, that is a yeah. good little trick. So I don't know. I'm super excited to see what happens because yeah, let us let us know. This time looked better too, and so I'm like, I don't know. As long as it works, I don't care. But but yeah, that's I. I, I think the moral of this story is it's not always the egg. Sometimes it is the sperm. Right. Yeah, it's I, not I always the egg. That's what we're trying to share with it you. It doesn't guys. always start with an egg. Sometimes it starts with a sperm. It's true. 
All right. Our next question. Hi, love your podcast. My husband and I started IVF earlier this year, had two retrievals. First, nine retrieved, nine fertilized, no blasts. We immediately did a second, 13 retrieved, 13 fertilized, four made it to day six blasts, three were PDT normal. Yay. First transfer, unsuccessful, switched to a natural start protocol with Dell estrogen and implantation occurred, but it ended in a chemical pregnancy. What would you all suggest before moving on to transferring our third and final PGT normal embryo? I have stage two endo that was mostly removed prior to transfers when my doc took out my tube with a hydrosalpinks. My husband's sperm count was stellar. We got pregnant once naturally two years ago, miscarried at five weeks. I mean, sometimes the first transfer just doesn't work. And, you know, unfortunately, we have all these things we can look at, but we don't, we honestly don't really know what happens. I think, um... Probably, I would think about, um, I lost my train of thought. You go, Carrie. I, try, I was trying to remember what I was going to say and I forgot. I would definitely do the RPL workup. You know, two two U-blade embryos that got transferred that didn't work. I would I would do that workup. I would also consider, even though you had surgery, I would do the two months of depot on leading into it just to make sure that that endo is totally squashed. Yeah. Um, realize that a lot of endometriosis is actually not visible. So even if your surgeon uh, removed everything that was visible, that doesn't mean that there may not be something that's still um, producing icky chemicals. Agreed. Agreed. Did you think about what you're going to say, Abby? No, I didn't. <laughs> All right, well, I'll think of it before the end of the show. I don't know what I was thinking. All right. Our next one. Thank you so much for doing your show. My husband, 37, and I, 35, are doing IVF for PGTM, both recessive characters carriers, AMH 4.3, LH 9.2, FSH 8.4, AFC 38, husband's tests show no concern. From two ICSI cycles with the antagonist protocol, got eight blasts, um, 18 and 20 retrieved, 11 and 13 mature, 10 and 10 fertilized. All told, six tested blasts failed PGTM, and the only two that passed failed PGTA, resulting in zero for transfer. Oh. So I guess this is one is where they did PGTM first and then did PGTA. Huh. I that's opposite of what I usually do. Yeah. Um, how can we adjust the protocol to improve the blast rate to increase our odds after priming with NuvaRing and estrogen cetratide? We're considering NuvaRing low dose Lupron protocol um, for next cycle. Would you suggest switching clinics to gain access to Zymot and calcium calcium ionophore? So they got eight blasts to test. Is that what she said? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you're going to top that. That's pretty good. I don't know that you're going to do a whole lot better than that. I think, I really think it's just luck of the draw. I think it's like Carrie says, pulling the lever on the slot machine in Vegas. I mean, I've seen some patients that have done, in fact, I have a couple that same sort of scenario, PGTA, PGTM, got one, did get one normal the first time around, went through the second time, had the same number to test and had like three that were that made it through both PGTA and PGTM. So I really do think there is something about the different pool of eggs that come along. I usually tell my patients, you know, coenzyme Q10, which I think she was taking. And I do think there's some benefit to taking antioxidants that get rid of free radicals. But you have to do those things a couple of months before you start. And I think there's also benefit to not doing back-to-back cycles because you have sort of a different group of eggs that come along. And hopefully with that different group, you'll have, you know, a better outcome. I would probably not use the NuvaRing leading into it. I maybe it's just me, but I feel like I've gotten burned by NuvaRing producing fewer eggs and cycles with an AFC of 38 getting 18 to 20 eggs. 
You should be getting more than that. You could be getting more than that. And so I would probably lay off the new ring. Um, and if you need to use like a very short OCP lead in in order to synchronize all your follicles so they go at the same time, like that's fine. You know, OCPs for a couple weeks, birth control pills are are fine birth control pills for a prolonged period of time are not necessarily your friend. I think the NuvaRing has more suppressive power than we give it credit for. Because when I see egg donors go through who've been on NuvaRing, I, I have found that I have to keep them off for a couple months in order for their yeah. ovaries to kick back in because it's just, it's a really powerful. Birth control. Yeah. yeah, it's powerful. It's like continuous I, birth control pills. I have to say for my patients who are going through PGTM, I push them harder on their stimulation yeah. because yeah. you're not... You're not just having to go through the normal, we need to get chromosomally yeah. normal embryos. It's we have to get past that and break the second barrier. And I agree with Carrie. I think you should probably be getting more. Um, I, I don't think your blast rate is actually the issue. It's the fact that we need to start off with more eggs theoretically. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly how much gonadotropin they were using for you, but I, I would probably be more aggressive to push your ovaries. And, you know, if they're worried about you hyperstimming, then do a Lupron trigger. I, I'm yeah. guessing you're trying to be gentle to let you be able to um, do an overall trigger, but I would push your ovaries out the wazoo and then <laughs> yeah. Lupron trigger you and give you all this yeah. to prevent hyperstimulation afterwards because um, it, you've, you've been through a lot and, but you just, you have to go through a second barrier. Most people, other people don't have to. And that, that does put an, an additional challenge onto you. Agreed. All right. Here's another one. My body responded poorly to my first IVF cycle. My left ovary grew follicles more quickly than my right. Doctor increased menopirangonal F after a couple of days into the stems. My estrogen was also slow to rise. Thankfully, the cycle wasn't canceled and we got 12 eggs, nine mature, oh, three fertilized, zero blast. We good. transferred two morulas and hoping for the best. What can be done to the next round to increase chances of success? Doctor said he can't explain why I didn't respond better. Background, unexplained infertility, trying for a little over a year, all my labs and semen analysis normal. I do take levothyroxine for very slightly elevated TSH. Both of us are 34, AMH of 5.2. Wow. HSG and sonohistogram, three failed IUIs on Clomid. You know, I think the most obvious thing would be hit you harder with more medicines right out of the gate. Um, and you know, one of those things I always tell my patients, I joke and say, it's like baking cookies. We don't want some to bake too fast and too slow. And it's kind of like you, it sort of, you didn't really say this, but it sounds like maybe some of the eggs on the other ovary went quicker and maybe there's some dyssynchrony in the sizes. And so that may have been part of the reason you didn't do so great. I think, you know, in retrospect, you know, I'm sure your doctor's going to look at that and go, yeah, we just need to start you out with more medicine. Sometimes when you have, um, an AFC count that's really high or you have an AMH that's really high, we're kind of a little nervous and we're like, okay, well, maybe we won't give her quite as much. And, and sometimes even if we give you sort of the typical starting dose and your AFC or your AMH is really high, some people just need a higher threshold to kind of get started. And so it sounds like that's what you needed. And there's kind of a sweet spot, even if your eggs kind of grow at the same rate, there's kind of a sweet spot. We don't like to push you greater than a certain like 12 to 14 days. We don't really get, want to go much longer than that for whatever reason. For most people, not everybody, but the eggs just don't do so well. And so, you know, I'm glad you're able to get 12 eggs, but I bet you with your next cycle, if they alter the stimulation, which I think they will, I think you'll get more and I think they'll be better grown and hopefully more like the same size as they grow along throughout the cycle. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I would take a look at the sperm with a little bit more detail too, just because uh, a fertilization rate of three out of nine is pretty low. Yeah. And so I would I would take a look at that. If you did as well. standard insemination, I'm I'm kind of thinking this place is relatively cons- conservative in what uh, they're what they're doing. And so if you did standard insemination, ooh, you might want to yeah, consider it this next time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was this the question that asked about Stymot? No. Yeah, actually they about did the prior one. No, it was a prior one. <laughs> Okay. Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's something to think about. The the Zymot is when you look at the the data, it says it's help. It helps if you run it through. You have to have a big enough sperm specimen in order to do that. Um, I know my lab looked at, at data to decide if we were going to start using it. Like we ran an internal trial and and didn't see any benefit. So I we don't use know that I would, we use it. I I mean, yeah. I I have some people that I have definitely we didn't use it the first time, and then we went back and used it after noting fragmentation in the sperm and had completely different outcomes. I mean, I don't think it's going to be everybody, um, no. but especially yeah, something to um, throw in there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. A couple more. Let's do it. All right. Okay. Let's see. Hello, Fertility Docs. Thank you for the podcast. I enjoy it every week and learn something new. I've been on this journey for one and a half years and have most recently had my first FET failure. I'm 33 with PCOS, eight euploid embryos left, did PGTA testing. I'm wondering if it is indeed true that statistically my rate of success will go up with my second transfer. Also, all testing before the FET went well and my lining was over 10. Do docs normally change FET protocols if there is a failure or does it take more than one failure to change protocols. I was on estrace um, three times a day, progesterone injection, one milliliter every three days, vaginal crinone twice a day, and of course, my prenatal vitamin D and CoQ10. What else can I do? Thank you. Um, so I have historically been a fan of vaginal and, progest- and injectable progesterone. I'm kind of going back to pure injectable progesterone to improve success. Too much. And I, ha- I can say that even with Crenone, um, a few years ago, I, for, I went from one every three days to essentially every other day, and I was seeing improvements. So I would change that. Um, you know, there there are as many ways to do an FET as there are probably people in this world. Um, and so, Well, maybe not that many, but there's there, a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of tweaks people can do. I mean, it, this is definitely where not only do we practice what is you know, in the studies, but there's definitely an art to what we do. And so um, I I think that most people would do something different, whether it be investigations before your next transfer or adding some steroids, adding some aspirin, um, different things like that. Um, you know, you have PGTA normal embryos, considering a receptiva test would be a very reasonable thing to do to look for that BCL6. Other thoughts? So with that being said, how many times have you guys done the exact same thing and gotten a different result? Yep. Oh, quite often. (laughs) So, yeah. So I agree with you, Susan. There's many different ways you can do it. I usually tell my patients, basically, you need estrogen. We need to know that your lining is well-grown. We need to know you're getting adequate progesterone. There's plenty of ways to do that. And it doesn't hurt to change it up. I mean, there's no problem in doing that if you feel better. But in reality, I I don't... Depends on the situation. And, you know, this patient has eight normal embryos left. Right. If yeah. <laughs> you have eight embryos left, I'm much more likely to say, hey, I think this may have just been bad luck. Let's try one more time. Yeah. 
Whereas if I have only one One. left or depending on somebody's family goals, that that's going to put me in a different kind of point of view. Yes, I would agree 100% with that. If a patient only has one embryo, I pull out all the stops. I tell them all the tweaks and changes that we could do that may help it because, you know, you want to do everything you can to get that person pregnant. But that being said, I think most of the time, there's a lot of different ways you can give estrogen and progesterone. Most of the time, if you have a really nice thick lining and you're absorbing your progesterone adequately, that's about the best we can do to make it a good place for an embryo to implant at this point. It was really funny. I heard the progesterone regimen. And as soon as you finished saying it, Susan, like I can hear three separate mentors' voices in my head going, Oh, that progesterone protocol is not sufficient. She needs more IM progesterone. Yeah. The yeah. Vaginal is not enough. Like I can hear that screaming in my head so loudly. <laughs> but who really knows, you know? Voices. So who really knows? Nobody. <laughs> so I would, you know, my, my, with this specific situation, I would probably switch to IM progesterone daily and and see how that goes. I mean, it's literally honestly, at the time we're recording this, you can't even get crinone or endometrius. So everybody's right. IM progesterone right. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, but yes, a lot of the time we do the exact same thing and get completely different results. So, you know, it's sometimes it truly is just keep going. And it's not that you necessarily have a higher success rate with the second transfer. It's that the cumulative rate is higher. Um, and so like, I know in our clinic, if we've got two uplay embryos for someone under 35, that's a 90% success rate by the time you transfer two. Yeah. That's two single embryo transfers, not a double. All right. One more question, Susan. What's our last question? Our last question for today. Hi, ladies. Love your podcast and look forward to my commute to work listening and re-listening to your episodes. Oh, My husband is 37 and I'm 38, have gone through two egg retrievals and one failed transfer chemical pregnancy. First egg retrieval got 20 eggs, 17 mature, six glass, and one normal PGTA. Second round, 31 eggs, 20 mature, seven blasts one normal PGTA. AMH is 4.84 and all other lab results are normal. We think we'll move forward with the transfer by trying to plan if the second transfer results in no live birth. Would you recommend that we do a third round or should we look to use donor eggs or sperm? Just does not seem as though we are getting good results with our with using our own. Appreciate any insight you have and thank you so much. I want to see a karyotype on both of them. Like I want to see what is the the arrangement of their chromosomes to see if there is something going on that leads to such good blast numbers but such low euploid numbers because six blast six to seven blasts out of uh, essentially 17 to 20 fertilized eggs that's awesome um per round but i i just wonder what else is going on I would recommend omnitrope or growth hormone in this situation. I've had quite a few people who are in their upper 30s and we do a cycle and we really just don't get as many chromosomally normal embryos as we're expecting and add in the omnitrope. And I've had some good result with that. And it's it's not cheap. Essentially, it probably ends up adding about $1,200 to your cycle um, the way that I typically do it. Um, but that that's something that I would add to the mix that might give you better results. Yeah. I mean, I, other than those things, there's not a whole lot of other things you can do. Make sure you're on coenzyme Q10, antioxidants, things like that. That may be helpful. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's everything. Any other things that you guys have to add to our episode today? 
No, I love the questions. Keep them coming. Yes. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure and subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We we would really appreciate that. And also, we have an upcoming book, in case you haven't heard, um, about IVF. So any tips that you guys have that you think we need to include in the book, hopefully we're going to include them. But if there's something really special that you think is important to include, let us know because we're in the stage of writing right now. So we could really use those tips. Um, we would love to hear your comments and love to hear your suggestions. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about your infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for Ask the Doc segment or sometimes in a whole episode just like this one. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own doc. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Fertility is complex, and while there's a lot we can't control in the journey to parenthood, nutrition is a big one that both partners can. This is why we've teamed up with Needed, a perinatal nutrition company that optimizes nutrition for both partners throughout all stages of pregnancy. They offer a variety of products to support women and their partners on their journey to conception, including their fertility support for two plants. Support your body with radically better nutrition and save 20% off with your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Therologics for balancing hormone levels. Therologics also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Therologics products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Therologics, supplements from science.